right. Now, if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to go um, uh, to the Gospel of Matthew. We are in Matthew today. Uh, Matthew 20. And uh, as you're going there, I want to remind you all that we have only uh, 14 more shopping days. Christmas is getting closer. Every week I like to remind you of how many shopping days there are because, of course, gifts are a big part of our Christmas tradition, our Christmas experience. I actually went to the post office yesterday and said, hey, if I want to mail a package, uh, how soon do I need to get it in the mail? And they said, ooh, Monday. Monday we're kind of guaranteeing. So if I just stress some of you out this morning, you're welcome, but I'm helping you out so that your loved ones can get their packages. I mean, it's a really busy time, isn't it? Um, Going to different programs, uh, concerts, all that good stuff. Gift giving, shopping, mailing stuff. Uh, It's just, it feels like scurry, 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 and and run around. And the reason why we give gifts uh, at Christmas time is, of course, because at Christmas, God gave us the greatest gift ever. Uh, his son, Jesus Christ, uh, God incarnate, as we say. And so we celebrate the greatest gift to come uh, to earth. And the reason why this is the greatest gift is because aside, apart from Jesus, our relationship with God is broken. And so Jesus becomes that that person. He becomes the, the conduit, the connection between us and God. And so he's come to earth to rescue us, to save us, and to help reconcile us so that we can be in relationship with God. And that's good news, amen? Yeah, and this is why we celebrate Christmas, and Christians all over the world uh, celebrate Christmas with giving of gifts, that great reminder that Jesus has come, and he is indeed the greatest gift who came 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. And frankly, that would be uh, good enough, just that God has reconciled us to, a, to him through the person of Jesus Christ, but God says, I've got more. I've got bonus for you. That God not only sent his son into the world to rescue us, to redeem us, to save us, to reconcile him to us, but also God wants better for our lives. God wants us to understand who he is and a glimpse into his kingdom. And so through the teachings and the person of Jesus Christ, And later, as Christians began to be inspired by Jesus' teachings, the world began to change. And I think oftentimes we uh, overlook all these changes, these practical, tangible changes in the world that Jesus brought about. Things that we just take for granted, frankly. And so over the past couple weeks during the season of Advent, I've suggested to you a couple different ways in which I... Uh, think that Jesus has changed things in the world. You know, sometimes as we look at Scripture, um, we, we talk about Scripture, and it's, it's very Scripture-related. But this sermon series is really about Brian's opinion. I want to be very clear. This is not the gospel. This is just Brian's opinion. And I think Jesus has really changed things in many, many different ways. And we've, we've looked at the ways in which Jesus has changed our education system our college system, K through 12 system. Last week, we looked at the ways in which Jesus changed healthcare and healing and hospitals. 
And today, we are going to look at the way in which I think Jesus has even changed our power structures, political structures, everything from local politics and local power all the way to international power, national power, everything in and through and between. And so that's what we're going to look at today is the ways in which Jesus in his ruling power has come and changed everything, and I think, in our world today. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you are a God who has come to us, Emmanuel, to, to rescue us, to save us, to change the world. Because, God, we need changing. We need fixing. And, God, in the midst of all that, you have blessed us with so many things things that we just take for granted. And so, God, give us open hearts and open minds and open lives to receive what you might have to say to us today. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So I believe Jesus has changed how we view power in the world today. You know, in ancient times, uh, ancient cultures, ancient empires, might equals right. It was all about power military power. And if you had the weapons, if you had the technology, you ruled in power. As we can look at any one of the ancient empires and we can think about how they controlled their society, how they governed, it was always about the strong people, the strongest and the mightiest of warriors. We think about the Egyptian empire, the Mongol empire, the Han empire, the the Persian empire. Or maybe here in our Western Hemisphere, we think about the Aztecs or the the Incas and the ways in which they ruled and reigned. It was always with, with military power, with physical power, and the strong people ruled. Or even here in North America, we think about some of the Native American tribes, the, the Apache, the Cherokee, the Navajo, here locally, the Kickapoo. And this is how Native American tribes would rule and reign with power, physical power. And I think everything has changed since Jesus Christ has come into the world as it relates to power. Now, there are still certainly examples of military power ruling the world today. I think of uh, at least three nations, China, North Korea, and Iran. We look at those countries just as examples and we think to ourselves or we we look at the ways in which their leaders rule with power and threats against anyone who might try to overrule them or overrun them. And the power is from above down onto the people and it's a rule of fear. Do what I say or I'll squish you, okay? This has always been how people and empires have ruled. Now, Jesus, of course, lived during the Roman Empire. 500 years of Roman rule. 1.7 million square miles ruled over about 70 million people. It was a pretty good size empire for sure. And the, the, the Roman Empire it was uh, mostly begun by a guy by the name of Gaius Octavian. We don't really think of him that way, right? We think of him as Caesar Augustus. 
And Caesar Augustus, I mean, if, if you're going to go pick a name to rule by, do you want to go by Gaius Octavian or Caesar Augustus? I mean, pretty obvious why he changed his name. And Caesar Augustus actually isn't a name, it's a title. Caesar literally means emperor. And Augustus literally means the anointed one. So the emperor anointed one, that was his title. And that's what everyone called him. And he came to power when he defeated uh, Mark Antony and Cleopatra. And this is the beginning of the Roman Empire. And it grew and grew and grew. And it became so big and so powerful that no one dared rebel against the Roman Empire. And this, of course, is where we get this whole idea of Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Well, how do you get for 200 years peace in, in this, this empire? You have such strong military power that no one dares rise up against you. And the Pax Romana in ancient times, it was viewed as a miracle. And Caesar Augustus was viewed as a god because how else could anyone rule and bring about such peace? Well, obviously, the gods were looking favorably upon him. And many people viewed him as a deity, as a god. And Caesar Augustus said, yep, I'm a god. And so who's going to dare rebel against the gods? And this is the empire to which Jesus was born. And people who lived for that 500 years of time, they feared the government. They feared the Caesars. They feared everybody who was in power, and they just did what they were told. The Roman Empire, in ancient times, it was viewed as too big to fail. It was so big. It was so powerful. No one ever thought the Roman Empire could fall apart. It was inconceivable. But it did. The Roman Empire fell in roughly 476. So the question, of course, is why? How did this happen? That this too-big-to-fail empire that was so strong, so mighty, that no one dared rebel against them, how in the world did this happen? Now, uh, there are lots of theories, and I'm not going to go into all the theories this morning, but I think there are a lot of influences and I think the most important influence on the fall of the Roman Empire is Jesus Christ. So I want to talk to you a little bit this morning about this power that Jesus had and how Jesus talked about and leveraged his power. So when Jesus was on earth, he said over and over and over to the people around him that he was God that he had absolute power. The theological term is, Jesus says, I'm omnipotent. I'm all-powerful. I am God. And he, with his powers, he could create anything. You guys know the Genesis story, right? When God was creating everything, he just spoke it into existence, and all of a sudden it would show up. That's the kind of power Jesus claimed to have. Now, if you, have, uh, if you make something, maybe you make uh, something out of clay, uh, like we'll just say a, a, a ceramic mug or something, you start with a ball of clay, right? Not Jesus. He would just speak it, and all of a sudden, a coffee cup would appear. Or maybe uh, some of you are in home building, 
You need wood and nails and, and any number of raw materials. And that's how you would create or build something, not Jesus. He would just speak it into being and something was created. Some of you I know uh, create software. And how do you do it? Well, you sit down at a computer and you've got all these different tools and these things. Not Jesus. If Jesus were going to create software, he would just speak it into being. Some of you, I don't know why, but you create insurance policies. And how do you do it? I don't know, piece of paper and a pen and you just start writing, right? You're probably wondering the same thing. How do we do it? But you've, you've got materials, you've got resources. Jesus didn't need any of those resources. He just spoke it, spoke all things into existence. I mean, do you hear the kind of power that Jesus claimed to have? I mean, this is extraordinary. Nobody talked like this in ancient times, but Jesus says, that's me. This is the kind of power I have. But it was restrained power. And over and over and over, we read throughout the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that even though Jesus claimed to be omnipotent, all-powerful, he restrained his power. He didn't need it or didn't use it as he could have. Now, there were little examples here and there where he would heal someone or he would uh, make a miracle of uh, loaves and fishes or any number of things like that. But when he was in trouble, when the temperature got turned up, he just stood there. And he allowed the powers of the day to do what the powers of the day did. And of course, Jesus could have squished them. He could have set them on fire. He could have annihilated them. He didn't even need to lift a finger. And he could have just made them disappear, but he didn't. Jesus says, I'm omnipotent. I'm all-powerful. And this is how I use, this is how I leverage my power. He served people. And we think about that Holy Week as they're sharing in that meal before he's arrested and taken to the cross. And he says to his disciples, this is what I want you to do as I do to you first with my power. And he washes the disciples' feet, which is extraordinary. And then there's the passage that we're going to look at this morning where Jesus is defining greatness, what it means to be great with power. Matthew 20 beginning with verse 20. When the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him, what is it you want? Jesus asked. She said, grant that one of these sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the 10 heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, you know, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must first be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, 
but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the most powerful person who ever lived on the earth said, this is how I want you to leverage your power. Serve other people. Use what you've got to serve other people and have an attitude of servanthood. And so in this moment, Jesus is reordering the power structures, I think, of society. I think what he's doing is he's creating a new worldview for the people to lean into and to really consider. Because in ancient times, and, and frankly, much today, you, put a, a, you look at an org chart, the most powerful person's on the top, right? And then they've got their people that, that are under them, and they help the person, and, and all the energy is getting pushed up to serve the person at the top. And what Jesus does in this teaching is he turns this org chart upside down. And he says, the most powerful person among you needs to serve. You need to serve up. You need to serve those around you and leverage your power. And this was completely unheard of in Jesus' day. People did not think this way at all. This was so countercultural. Because in ancient times, might equals right. The powerful rule over the powerless. And Jesus says, no, this is how I want you as my followers to live. If you have power, leverage your power to serve other people. And frankly, this is pretty counterintuitive for us, right, as human beings. This is just not how we think. Our human instinct is self-preservation, our human instinct is to kind of climb up the ladder, right? To get, to get higher and higher. Uh, when, when I was a kid, we used to play King of the Hill in Minnesota on a big pile of snow. Anybody ever play King of the Hill? Well, you get, if you've ever made it to the top, you know how this goes, right? Once you get up there, people come up. What do you do? You push them down. I have never watched King of the Hill where people are standing up at the top going, hey, come on up here, let's share this. Have you? No, and I was usually the guy getting pushed down. And it's this idea of trying to get up, clawing our way to the top. And whoever's got the power, the most powerful person, they're knocking the people down, right? Getting a big face of snow or sand or whatever it might be. This is what it means to be human, climbing up the ladder, climbing up the hill, and those around us pushing down. This is, this is how things were ordered, how things were structured in ancient times. The powerful were on top. The Greek philosopher Aristotle, he kind of explained it this way. He said it this way, For some should rule and others should be ruled is a thing not only necessary but expedient. From the hour of their birth, some are marked out for subjection and others for rule. Aristotle just explains this so clearly. Some people are just born to rule, and most people are born just to be ruled over. We know this, right? And it came from the great philosopher Aristotle. Along comes Cicero a little while later, a Roman politician, and he affirms Aristotle. And he says, rank must be preserved. There's this order, this structure to society. Rank must be ordered. Don't give up power. Absolutely 
not. The commoners must be commoners. That's where they belong. And then there was a contemporary Roman historian, Tacitus. He called the commoners the rabble. There's the elite, the rulers, and the rabble. That's you and me. We're the rabble. We're the commoners. And we're meant to be ruled over. And this is how their society and societies throughout ancient times were ruled. But I believe that when Jesus came into the world on that first Christmas, he changed everything. He taught the people to leverage their power to serve other people. And pretty soon, a community of Jesus followers arose. And this is how they tried to live their lives together. Not with power over people, but to work together as a church, as a congregation, as viewing everyone as equal. Because people are made in the image of God. We've talked about this, imago dei, and that every human being has value, not because of what they do, what they can accomplish, what their resources are, but because they are made in the image of God. And this was so radical. This was so different. And the Romans did not know what to do with this. That the educated in a church could sit down with slaves. And that's how Jesus is calling us to live. This was absolutely radical. Jesus says, I want you to give up your power, you powerful people. And so that's what people did. That's what people in the churches did is they gave up their power. St. Francis gave up his possessions. St. Augustine gave up his mistress. John Newton gave up slaves. Martin Luther gave up the opportunity to be a powerful lawyer to serve in the church. And over and over, we see these Christians who were impacted, who were influenced and inspired by the teachings of Jesus to give up what they had to serve other people and to make a difference in the world. So let's go back to Rome and the Roman Empire for just a minute. The Roman Empire, something happened for Rome, the Roman Empire to fall apart. Remember, Rome was built on military might, like all ancient empires were built. But in 306, a new guy came to the throne of the Roman Empire. His name was Constantine. And when he came to, the, 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 to become the ruler of the Roman Empire, things changed rapidly. Because under the influence, or of the influence of his mother, Constantine became a Christian. Constantine became a Jesus follower. And within just a few years, seven years, Constantine made an edict. It's called the Edict of Milan in 313. And the Edict of Milan, what Constantine said in 313, is now Christianity, being a follower of Jesus, is no longer outlawed. Up until that point in time, you could not be a Christian. It was illegal to be a Christian. And what the Edict of Milan did uh, under the, the, the leadership of Constantine, it says, okay, now we're going to allow for Christianity. 
Now we're going to tolerate the Christians. We're going to put up with them. If you want to be a a pagan, knock yourself out. But if you want to be a Christian, that's fine too. And so in that moment, in 313, there was a dramatic shift in global power. All of a sudden, Christians could be Christians and walk the streets as everyone else. But then things continued on as more and more people explored what it meant to be a Christian. In 325, there was another council. There was a gathering together. We know it as the Council of Nicaea. And this is where we get our Nicene Creed, where the church leaders gathered together and said, hey, what do we believe? They said, I know, I believe in God the Father Almighty. And you guys know the Nicene Creed. So that's one of the major things that came out of the Council of Nicaea. But the other thing that came out of the Council of Nicaea is Constantine said, hey, here's the deal. What we're going to do is we're going to create a church in Jerusalem. We know it today as the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. It's the place where the people thought it was really important to put a, a holy place, a place to worship God in that area, in that region where Jesus was crucified and resurrected. And so in 325, this building, this church building began to be built. And Constantine said, this is the holiest place in all of the world there in Jerusalem. And so he's planting these seeds. He's making Christianity more palatable. And the Christian worldview grew and grew and more people started following Jesus. Well, within 55 years, another Roman emperor was on the throne In 380, the Edict of Thessalonica was declared. And this is really important because in the Roman Empire now, because of this edict, Christianity was no longer just tolerated, but it became the official religion of the Roman Empire. So if you were a citizen of the Roman Empire, you are now a Christian. This was, it was declared the religion of the people. You see where this is going? Now all of a sudden, the Roman Empire is a Christian empire. This changed everything, I think. Because now all of a sudden, the Christians, they're using Scripture, they're using the Bible uh, on all their decision-making. They're using Scripture and the teachings of Jesus to kind of figure out what to do, how to rule and how to reign. And, and, and it's almost like as if somebody just put the Bible on top of the entire Roman Empire, previously built on power. Now all of a sudden, it's built on the teachings of Jesus. And I think this changed everything. Because as they're asking questions, how do we rule? How do we reign? They're looking at one another going, well, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus tell us to do? Remember those bracelets, What WWJD? That's what was going on. Well, what would Jesus tell us to do? And this is how they lived and trying to struggle and, and, and figure it out. I think as they were going through all this, this nation, this empire that was built on political power of military and might, now all of a sudden was built on servanthood. And it was like a house of cards and things just fell apart. Because that's not how Rome was built. They had to figure out what to do next. And I think about this and the ways in which this new power was proclaimed and lived in the Roman Empire. 
And I think it started with a guy, Jesus Christ, born in a barn, had no power, died as a slave. And yet he said, this is what I want you to do with your power. Jesus was poor his entire life. He didn't own a house. He didn't own a car. He didn't, you know, didn't ha have meals from, from day to day. He just kind of wandered around, provided living daily existence. And yet he had this attitude, of, this is what you do with power. You serve others. And this worldview shifted as more and more people became Jesus followers. In ancient times, if somebody talked about humility or being humble, it was a sign of weakness. Nobody would stand up in front of everybody else and say, I'm a humble person. They would like throw stuff at you because what you're doing is you're saying, I'm a weak person. And what Jesus did is he said, oh no, humility is actually a virtue. And I think today when we, we talk about humility or we give examples of humble people, we're like, that, that's a great person, right? We think that's a good thing. But not in ancient times. That was ridiculous. And so Jesus is changing their worldview and how they saw things. And the more Christians grew and the more uh, the, uh, the, the Christianity spread, especially across Europe, the more they're trying to figure out what does it mean to exercise and leverage power as nations, as empires. And I want to give you just a, a couple examples of, of how things change. And, and perhaps the most famous uh, example that we think of today, especially in our Western world, is it was inspired Christians who put together the Magna Carta. And when King John signed that document in 1215, this is what is in the Magna Carta. Not a document written by pagans, but a document, a governmental document written by Christians. From reverence for God and for the salvation of our soul and those of our ancestors and heirs, for the honor of God and the exaltation of the Holy Church and the reform of our realm. And what the Magna Carta did is it set out to organize common law. It set out to organize limited government. It set out to organize that power from above is meant to serve the people, not lord it over the people. So the Magna Carta was transforming in our culture, and our society. And as nations rose and Christians began to create these documents about what does it mean to rule and reign and to actually serve people, more and more of these governmental documents arose up. And I want to give you one more example. Thomas Jefferson wrote this. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. When I read this, I laugh. What I think is so hilarious is Jefferson writes, we hold these truths to be self-evident. There was nothing self-evident about all people being equal in ancient times. Remember? We talked about this. In ancient times, it was the rulers ruling over the commoners. 
And Thomas Jefferson said, oh no, it's self-evident. We just know this. It's common knowledge. You can just look around and see that we are all self-equal people, right? I mean, do you hear how the worldview has changed? I mean, what changed between Aristotle and his writings where he said, it's so obvious that people are not equal. And Thomas Jefferson, who said, it's so obvious that all people are equal. I think it was Jesus. I think it was Jesus in the ways in which he came and taught and exercised and leveraged his power to those around him. To look at people, slaves, whatever their social class of the day, to view them in the image of God, imago dei, and to serve them. Jesus says, whoever wants to be great among you must be a servant. See, I think even in our power structures today, I think we probably agree with Jefferson, right? It's self-evident that we're all equal. Why is it self-evident? Because Jesus told, it, told us that's the case. I think when he came, he changed everything. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you um, that you are a God who, who came into this world 2,000 years ago and turned everything upside down. And God, there's so many of these things that through the teachings and life of Jesus, the Christians that followed, we just take for granted. It's just, this is the way it is. This is the way it's always been. But God, as we look at our history, global history, world history, even our own American history, God, you, you changed these things. This is not the way things were in the world before you came so God, remind us again that you're good, that you're faithful, and that you continue to want the very best for your people. That God, you have come to bless us and make things good, to establish your kingdom among us. God, help us to always be grateful for all these things. Lord, in your mercy, Hear our prayer.